From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Education data from the state of Idaho is a little bit like a box of chocolates. You never know exactly what you're going to get, and you sometimes never know exactly when you're going to get it. And we kind of had an example of that this week with a round of reading test scores that we've been waiting on for a while. A little bit of a surprise, but Thursday morning the state released the latest preliminary data for the fall Idaho reading indicator test. Uh, That was the test that was given at the beginning of this school year in grades K through 3. And Kevin, as we've talked about on the show almost every week this year, youth reading and youth literacy are probably the focal point in education right now. It's a tone that Governor Brad Little has set. Uh, The legislature has invested in the reading initiative. That funding was doubled this last year. So all eyes are on the reading initiative and we got brand new scores on on Thursday morning, sort of a surprise release, but sort of uh, some good news and bad news. Yeah, uh, right? it was a mixed bag. Uh, yeah. So, so the test is administered in grades kindergarten through third grade. What we found is that compared to the previous year's numbers, compared to the fall 2018, which we can use as kind of a baseline, I think that was the first year we went statewide yeah. with the new mm-hmm. test, but the percentage of students who are hitting their reading benchmarks in first grade, second grade, and third grade increased for the fall of this year compared to the fall of 2018. So that's the good news, increases in grades one through three. The bad news, and really the area of concern here, is the numbers show that kindergarten students are not showing up on the first day of school prepared to read. Just 43% of Idaho's kindergartners showed up meeting their grade level benchmarks this fall. That's down from 45% the year before. But what the numbers are showing me, uh, I mean, if 43% are hitting the benchmarks, 57 are not. So Mm -hmm. what we're seeing is nearly 6 in 10 kids not showing up at kindergarten with the basic reading skills they need. And everybody talks about how reading and literacy is so important at these early grades. It's really foundational and sets you up uh, for your learning career, the whole rest of your academic career. Right. And, and something I've said many times uh, in interviews, and I've probably said it before on this podcast, the fall kindergarten IRI score is not an assessment on the school. It is an assessment right. on that child and everything that has preceded that child's arrival in kindergarten. And that's, you know, it's an assessment of what sort of exposure that child has had to to reading readiness because you know we're talking about kindergartners it is a reading readiness screener you know that, that that's another misnomer people seem to have about the kindergarten IRI I mean kids are not expected to be reading at this point it's a no. lot of letter recognition right. it's a lot of pre-reading skills but those fall kindergarten scores really give you a sense of how prepared students are walking in the door so the implications for this uh, as it relates to the whole debate over pre-k uh, the emerging debate over the need for all-day kindergarten programs as, as kids come into the school system. These numbers are going to uh, play into that debate, and I think they're going to put that debate into some fresh context. Let's get into the politics of it, and, and let's get into the context and where we're at now and, and where we may go next. But we've talked about how reading is 
is such a focal point. I was just, uh, not this week, but last week, the week before, I was kind of following Governor Brad Little around for a couple of days. He had his Governor's Summit on the Future of Work. Uh, he participated in a Boise uh, Startup Week seminar. So I followed him around for about 24 hours. And one of the things he said, uh, I think that it was at the Governor's Summit on the Future of Work, he said, if we're spending half of our state budget on education, we have zero excuses to not have our kids reading proficiently by the end of third grade, and that's all kids. And so we're not there yet at third grade, and students coming in, like you said, not prepared uh, to hit those benchmarks, the initial benchmarks in kindergarten. So an area of concern here, I've followed Governor Little's education task force all summer. They're about to wrap up their work in less than a month. And early literacy and early reading has been a major focal point, but they're gearing their efforts they seem poised to make a recommendation to expand state-funded but still optional all-day kindergarten. No one's talking about pre-K at the task force, and the legislature for years, Kevin, as you know, has resisted all talk of pre-K. I think Idaho is now one of just four states uh, in, in the United States that does not offer state-funded pre-K. And, and so I thought that that was really interesting, but that just kind of wanted to set up sort of the the political debate and the context and where we're at now. Right. And, and, you know, to expand a little bit on all-day kindergarten, which is a topic that I've been looking at pretty closely these past few months and, and looking at even more closely as I roll out a series on reading in December, you're seeing more districts jumping into all-day kindergarten, at least for some students and in some cases universal all-day kindergarten for all students. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm seeing different things and hearing different approaches as I go to some districts. I was talking to officials in the West Ada School District uh, earlier this week for, for my literacy series. They have not gone to all-day kindergarten and, and not to a universal all-day kindergarten. Partly it's a, a resources issue. They don't have space for right. all of these kindergartners. Some of these schools, we've talked about this a little bit, but would basically need double the space at the kindergarten level because if you think about it, right now the state pays for half day. And, and traditionally, that's what's been offered. And West Ada, which is bursting at the seams with growth as it is, really, uh, they don't feel like they have the space to accommodate kids for all-day kindergarten. So what they've done is kind of an expanded kindergarten program that uh, that serves students who are at risk and who, who are not reading at grade level. So it's a little bit more of a targeted approach. You know, other districts and, and charters have jumped into all-day kindergarten. Some are charging tuition. A handful are charging yep. tuition. Um, spend some time at Sage International, a charter school in Boise. They offer kind of two options to their their parents as uh, their, their kids are enrolled in kindergarten. You can do the half day or you can do a full day but pay tuition for it. And they found that the all-day tuition... The all-day kindergarten, even with the tuition, is a more op more popular option with parents. But again, I mean, some some schools are really jumping into all-day kindergarten. Others are are not. They're putting their literacy money elsewhere as right. opposed to using literacy money to expand kindergarten. So really, it's all over the map. And I don't know if the task force recommendation, an optional all-day kindergarten recommendation is going to change that all that much. I think you'll still have districts and charters uh, picking their own course. But, you know, again, I'm struck as I write about this and as I research this, uh, the, the proliferation of all-day kindergarten programs and 
really the shortage of pre-K programs because uh, state funding cannot be used for pre-K. So the schools that do offer a pre-K option are having to figure out how to do it with other sources of money. Yeah, uh, that's that's exactly right. And I, I think there's a couple other things in terms of context to point out here. The IRI, which is how we measure uh, our K-3 reading levels, that's the Idaho Reading Indicators Test, still a fairly new test. 2018 was the first year that we went statewide. Uh, we administer that test in the fall and then again in the spring in May. So every, every September and every May, we administer this test. Uh, just in the second year of going statewide, they will give it again in May, and that's the test that will show us the growth uh, that occurs during the right. school year. But after that, we'll have a couple years' worth of data, and it will be really interesting as we move into this literacy initiative. The state's now putting $26 million a year uh, into early childhood literacy and reading, It'll be interesting to see what happens in the spring and in the next couple of years with IRI results. It's a significant investment. It's one of the governor's top priorities. Uh, we do talk about how it's a, a new test, and, and so we can't compare it to the old IRI results. Um, but even at the third grade level, uh, we're still below 65% proficiency or hitting grade level reading benchmarks. And so we're not even close to all students hitting the third grade goal, uh, there's troubling signs in kindergarten. It is important to know it's still a new test. It's still just in the second year, but a lot of resources are being pushed uh, towards literacy, and it'll be interesting to see how this discussion plays out as we get more and more data, as we get the spring data, as we go into next year and get data there. It'll be interesting to see what changes and where this discussion goes. Um, for sure. And, and let's talk a little bit about the data that we don't have at this point. Right. What was released uh, at the state board meeting on Thursday is preliminary and it's very broad brush data. It's it's grade it's grade level statewide numbers. We don't have it by school or by district. We don't have it by uh, subgroup population or, or demographic breakdowns of any kind. We're hoping that that more complete data set will be available in early November. Um, but we've asked for it. We've asked for it, and, and we sort of never know uh, with the State Department of Education when the data will be available or what's going to be available. And that was sort of the case this week with this preliminary data. We filed a written public records request for the data on Monday of this week. Uh, a State Department of Education public records specialist wrote back and said the data is not in the system, and in fact, he has no idea when it will be in the system. We wrote back again Monday and said, well, hey, it looks like on the State Board of Education's agenda for this week, they will be talking about IRI data. Are you sure that new, inform new data will not be released for the State Board of Education meeting? Another State Department of Education spokesperson wrote back and seemed to suggest we would only be talking about old IRI data at the State Board meeting. And then lo and behold, seven minutes before the State Board meeting kicked off on Thursday morning, there's our new IRI data. All of a sudden, it had magically appeared. Um, so, yeah, we never really know what we're going to get or when we're going to get it. Right. But we will stay on top of it. Uh, obviously, I want to see more of the district-level data and some of the demographic data so that we can uh, get a better sense of what's happening and what the trends are, even though we're two years into the, this new test and yeah. we don't have long-term trends. You can start to see the beginnings of some patterns emerging. So that's uh, what I'm hoping to 
to see here in the, the weeks to come and, and hoping to uh, illuminate more as I head into a literacy series. Quickly, before we get away from reading and, and to kind of tease out the literacy series a little bit, uh, I'm reaching out to as many uh, parents and teachers as I can talk to between now and December. And uh, as I mentioned on my blog a few days ago, and we mentioned on our Facebook page, if you have something you want to tell us about, about the, the, the process that you're seeing as a parent, as your young kids, K through three, are learning reading and working their way through this new uh, reading assessment, we'd like to talk to you, uh, teachers in the classroom uh, who are administering this test, trying to interpret the data. Uh, we'd like to talk to you as well. So if you, if you have a story to share, uh, send me an email. You can get in contact with me through our website uh, or leave us a, a comment on the Facebook page. I look forward to hearing from you. Yeah, you've really been on the road the last two weeks visiting schools, visiting educators, gearing up for this big series that we will see focusing on reading and literacy End of the year, right? December yes, time. December, frame. we want to get this out ahead of the legislative session because we know this is going to be a topic again uh, before the legislature. Speaking of the 2020 legislative session, the State Board was busy this week in Lewiston, and one of the uh, topics was uh, Superintendent Ibarra's uh, budget request. And as you wrote on Wednesday, uh, the conversation was possibly a preview of what we may see and what we may hear when the legislature does come to town. It, it sure felt that way, Kevin. And um, so Superintendent of Public Instruction, Sherry Ibarra, every year develops a public school's budget request. Uh, just for clarity, we're talking about the 2020-2021 uh, budget year yes. here. Uh, we've already reported that the superintendent uh, is putting forward a request of nearly $2 billion. Uh, she wants to increase K-12 public school spending uh, by just over $100 million next year. That's in line with recent increases. And kind of the thing driving that uh, is she wants to spend, I want to say, $40 million to increase teacher salaries for the veteran teachers through expanding out the career ladder. That's the big part of her budget. We've already reported on yeah, that. The numbers aren't new, but the reactions from the state board were new and, and interesting. Yeah, so she presented it on Wednesday. And as soon as she got done with kind of her introductory highlights of the budget, State Board of Education members basically took turns asking Superintendent Ibarra to justify uh, this proposed increase. State Board member Emma Ashley actually twice asked her, how can you justify the return on investment for this $100 million? Uh, Emma Ashley said, are we going to see increased graduation rates? Are we going to see increased student success? And how are we measuring that? Uh, Linda Clark weighed in, Debbie Critchfield weighed in, and it was really interesting. Superintendent Ibarra, I don't know if she was fully expecting the question because when Emma actually said, how are we going to measure this, Superintendent Ibarra said, well, actually, I don't know if you know this, but Idaho is not ranked 49th in, this, in the country in education. It's probably more like 25th. And then she went on to highlight the new Idaho reading indicator test and the mastery education programs, but may not have fully answered the question about how we're going to gauge the return on investment on the $100 million dollars. And I got the sense that some of the debate had to do with higher education. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and this is something that you followed closely, but some of the comments basically said, suggested if we eat up all the, the basic chunk of new funding that we have available for education, we send it all to the K-12 level, 
Are we going to be ignoring our higher education system? And you keyed in on one of the things that I think also Emma Ashley said about we can't have these unfunded mandates at the higher education level. And she was referencing a pay increases from last year. for university staff and faculty that wasn't fully funded by the legislature, which left the universities and the colleges to have to pick up the, pick up the slack and, and come up with money on their own. Yeah, and so I think that this is probably a preview of the 2020 legislative session. We already believe that there's going to be competition for budget resources as there is every year. But more and more, there's a little bit of talk about how there could be a scarcity of financial resources, uh, about maybe the economy could be slowing down, uh, about maybe we won't have enough money to go around for everything that we want to do. We've heard the task force say that. We've heard other people say that. And so state board members really wanted to understand how everything in Superintendent Ibarra's budget worked together to increase funding and where that money would go. And they just wanted to be able to feel comfortable with what was in that request so they would know about it, so they could, if they get asked about it, they could attempt to justify it. And it was interesting, Superintendent Ybarra really leaned on her her chief budget deputy, Tim Hill, uh, to walk through the finer points of the budget. And and this is a, and that's not new. Tim Hill's done that for numerous superintendents going back before Superintendent Ybarra. But it's interesting to me, a lot of that $100 million increase is just for growth. It's right. not an expansion of programs. They under-budgeted for field trips and transportation a little bit before. They have to dig out from a hole. We've talked about the Advanced Opportunities Program and how that has grown and how it's really tough to estimate how much that's going to cost because you don't know how many students are going to take advantage of those programs. But also, you know, newsflash, we keep hearing about Idaho being one of the fastest-growing states. We're expecting an increase in student enrollment which is going to increase the number of support units, which are basically a fancy budget term for classrooms, and that really drives the budget. So almost $38 million of that $100 million is just for growth within the system. It's not an expansion of programming. Uh, and so it's going to be a really interesting year, I would think. And, and this felt a little bit like a, a change in tone from the state board. Yeah. Um, We've heard the state board talk before about their concerns about tuition costs and rising tuition and rising fees at the universities. But at the same time, the state board and the legislature really haven't done a whole lot to head off those tuition and fee increases because, you know, and we've seen it year in and year out, the K-12 budget has increased at a much higher percentage than the higher education budget. Five, six, seven percent a year for C- the K-12 Compared to budget. maybe two to three yeah. percent increases in, in the higher education budget. So, you know, you know, back in the spring, Debbie Critchfield wrote a guest opinion that we ran criticizing the tuition and fee increases and saying, you know, we really have to get out of this pattern of increasing tuition and fees every year which is all well and good for, for a guest opinion. But if the state board is serious now about talking about, well, we need to invest in higher education, they may actually, they may be putting their money where their mouth is here and, and saying, you know, if we are serious about trying to avoid these annual tuition and fee increases, we got to do something. We, we have to provide the universities and the colleges some form of funding to offset, you know, tuition and fee increases to take the pressure off of the institutions to continue to uh, in- increase tuition and fees. 
And it's all really interesting stuff. And, and it came on Wednesday just about the same time that uh, a national study came out that I wrote about, and you can see the details at idaho8news.org, about where states get their revenue for higher education. Idaho's numbers were a little bit surprising. Uh, they actually get a larger share of dollars from state, uh, state general funds than the national average. That surprised me because we've had all of this talk right. about the shift away from tax dollars and onto tuition and fees, which is definitely happening. There's no question that it's happening, but the extent to which it happens is maybe a little bit surprising. Interesting numbers on the national scale about how Idaho is funding higher education from tax dollars, from tuition and fees. But, you know, anyway, you slice it. The shift has happened over the course of years. It's continued to happen. Maybe the state board this week signaled that it's time to, you know, move the pendulum back in the other direction. Well, and I think that there's something to that. And we've talked before, Kevin, about how there's almost been a holding pattern for higher education initiatives and recommendations and certainly funding over the last several years. Uh, part of that was coming out of the recession, but part of that really over the last two years, unprecedented turnover in higher education leadership. Four new presidents uh, of the state's colleges and universities in just about one year's time frame finally got those folks in place over the summer. And so maybe with that leadership team in place and some stability now at the higher education level, maybe they do take a look at, at doing more with higher education. Uh, but I think it's foreshadowing the 2020 legislative session. It's really a tangible real-world example of this perception of competition for scarce financial budget resources. But it's going to be interesting, but we're going to get another preview before long because during that state board meeting, Sherry Ybarra announced that she and her staff are preparing for a joint meeting with the State Department of Education, the State Board of Education, and the House Education Committee at the end of October. I think she said October 29th and October yeah, that 30th. Yeah, that's right. That's going to be fascinating. That's going to be another preview, but they're going to talk about how state and federal funds are spent. They're going to talk about who administers programs, about how different programs work together. I think that's going to be really interesting and really telling, especially... I mean, we've talked about the House Education Committee and how last session went, but they really, some of those members really have tried to assert themselves as the players when it comes to education policy setting in the state. They want to take a lead role in that. Some of them have been frustrated by past task forces and feeling like their hands were tied as legislators and policymakers. I'm really interested in that uh, upcoming well, there's, meeting. There's never a dull moment when the House Education Committee is around. So. No. That will be an interesting meeting and another foreshadowing what, of what to expect in the 2020 session. So good job getting us caught up with this week's developments and, and setting the stage for what we may be hearing in the weeks to come. Yeah, thanks. If you need to get caught up on any of that at all, uh, the homepage, idahoednews.org, uh, is the place to start. We had coverage of the state board meeting with the scrutiny of Superintendent Ibarra's budget request. We also had uh, your report tracking higher education spending, putting it in context with kind of state funding and how Idaho stacks up a little bit compared to some of its peers. Let's shift gears because both of us have had occasion the past couple of weeks to be in the Bruno and Grandview schools. And, and you have to make an effort to go to the Bruno and Grandview schools. It is, uh, it's a part of Idaho that's a little bit off the beaten path. It's uh, pretty far from interstates. Uh, but we both went you went and you wrote a, a detailed piece about what's happening in the, in the Bruno Grandview School District and, and kind of the district's approach to 
a turnaround. Yeah, I, I really felt happy to get this project finished. I'd been working on it for three weeks, almost a month, but it's almost sort of a status report. And, and I framed it like an inside look at one school district's turnaround. But the context you need to know here to get started is just over a year ago, the state of Idaho released a list of the 29 lowest performing schools in the state. That's part of the state's new accountability plan. That's something the state does now. Of the 29 schools, two of Bruno Grandview's three schools made that list, the Mm -hmm. list of lowest performing schools. It's a district that struggled with student achievement, particularly with standardized test results over the last eight to ten years. And I've gotten to know their superintendent, uh, Ryan Cantrell, a little bit, really over the past year. Uh, I followed him with some of his work with the task force this summer, and he just kept inviting me out to the district. If you want to know what's going on, if you want to know how we're responding to this and, and, and how we're owning it and how we're taking it seriously, you have to come out. And so I spent a whole day out in Bruno Grandview and talked to as many people as I could. I spent the day with Superintendent Cantrell. I met with each of the building principals. I met with four or five parents, uh, two school board members. And there is a culture change, and it's an all-hands-on-deck movement in the Bruno Grandview district. They're reinventing their culture. They're talking about owning their data and recognizing where they're at. But it's a culture of no excuses, Kevin. And the superintendent and his leadership team have been visiting 20 other schools throughout the West over the last two years, taking site visits and taking notes about what's working. They're really interested in how they run... RTIs, response to interventions, how they, and we're getting into the alphabet soup here, uh, but some of these programs like the PLCs, the professional learning communities, yes. professional development, how they handle staff training, and they're begging, they're borrowing and stealing and implementing best practices that work in similar school districts, but it's really a culture shift, and everybody's involved, and rather than making excuses about, oh, we're a remote district, or oh, we don't have the money, or we don't have the opportunities as some of these other larger districts, the first step was really recognizing where they're at and that they weren't happy with where they're at. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to reinvent the culture. They redesigned their curriculum. Now they have, you know, talking about owning data and being transparent, they're really embracing this. They post assessment results in the hallway now. They have the district strategic plan framed in the superintendent's office. Um, And they are starting to see really encouraging dividends. Their IRI scores from spring of 2019, this past spring, uh, 100% of kindergartners actually met their reading benchmarks. And so they're really encouraged. They have a long way to go. But this was kind of an in-depth piece, and I can only do so much here, kind of summarizing it on the podcast. It was published on Monday, so you got to go back, scroll down on the homepage a little bit. But it's one an inside look at one district's reinvention plan, but that's really what it is. It's changing the culture. It's owning the data. It's being transparent. It's no more excuses. Uh, But it's a belief that students can succeed and achieve and that it doesn't matter that they're a remote district or that they're not the wealthiest district or that they're on a four-day calendar. Uh, They've stopped using excuses and they're starting to see results and everybody's buying in. And I was just struck by the commitment to transparency and the commitment to change the culture because it would have been so easy to to almost let this overwhelm you. Mm-hmm. Where do we go from here? We're on the lowest performing list of schools. The state published that 
Idaho Ed News wrote Idaho Education News wrote about it, so everybody knows about it. That could be so discouraging and overwhelming, but they've really responded in a positive way, recognizing that they have an opportunity and an obligation to do better. And I was just really impressed by the whole thing. That's not to say that their troubles are over or they've figured it all out or that they've righted the ship. They are seeing positive returns. They have a growth mindset. They're committed to data and goal making, but they know they have years to go. Uh, the first step is they want to get off that lowest performing schools list in another two years when it comes out again. And then from there, they want to approach state average and then exceed state average. Mm -hmm. And But they've talked about having a sustainable culture there so that if if a principal moves on or if a superintendent moves on, what they're doing will remain in place and that there's buy-in. Fascinating stuff. And I got to say, hats off to Ryan Cantrell, the superintendent, for peeling back the curtain and letting us have that kind of look. We don't often get that kind of access and information and time from a school district. And so that just, to me, showed how serious they yeah. are about the whole process. And then, after I left, two weeks later, they invited you out to talk about their literacy strategy. Right. So I went with an eye towards what's going on in the elementary schools and what they're doing to, to get the improvements in the reading scores that you alluded to. Bruno Grandview is one of a number of schools that I'm reaching out to across the state where we saw significant improvements in the IRI from fall 2018 to spring 2018. 100% of kindergartners. They have smaller class sizes. We're talking about a small group of students. That's amazing. You're right. And, and the thing is, you know, you can't spend very much time with Ryan Cantrell without talking about culture. I mean, yeah. he, he is an evangelist about the idea of school culture. And some of the things that kind of jumped out when I was talking to him, and I don't know if this is going to work into the literacy project, but it, it definitely is a backdrop. And it's definitely something that's on my mind as I prepare to write about Bruno Grandview and some of these other improving school districts. He talked about you have to show patrons that you're you're showing improvement. That yeah. That's really important for, for, for morale internally, but community morale. Um, you know, getting a supplemental levy passed in Bruno Grandview is not easily done. It's a conservative community. And, you know, Cantrell feels that as a superintendent, he's got to show results so that he can make that case to patrons. You know, he's also very much aware of the challenges of staff retention. Like every rural district in the state, this is a challenge. You know, Cantrell himself commutes from Nampa to, to Bruno Grandview every day. And that, you know, I did it one day, and I can tell you, that's a long drive. Yeah. And he's doing it, you know, every day, you know, good weather, bad weather. I mean, and he's got other teachers who are doing it as well because he believes that he's been able to, to get them to buy into the idea of, we're trying to change things in the school district. You can be on the ground level of trying to change things, uh, of helping us improve. And he's a realist about it. He says, you know, look, I'm not going to hang on to a lot of these teachers forever. They're not going to stay. They're not going to retire here. Maybe they'll come with the idea of being here for two or three years. But if I can get them to stay for six years, if I can just squeeze a couple more years out of them and get a little bit more experience in the classroom with them and a little bit more mentorship from them as they grow and, and, and mature and develop as teachers, we're just that much further ahead. So it's about the culture there. And, you know, I was really struck by the Bruno Grandview culture two days later 
when my literacy tour, as I like to call it, the literacy tour, uh, took me to Cascade, yeah. another rural school district that saw significant improvements in, in the IRI. That's why I went to, to talk to the principal there and the superintendent. And I was hearing the same kind of approach, the same kind of emphasis on changing the culture. And, you know, you know Jeff Blazer is the new superintendent in Cascade. He's only been there for a year or so. Uh, Joni Stevenson is the, the principal there, the one principal, because it's one building from K through 12. She's been there about four years. It struck me that Cascade is about three years behind where Bruno yeah. Grandview yeah. is now. I mean, Bruno Grandview got in on this a couple of years ago. Cascade is trying to get in on it as well. A lot of the same things that were being talked about, you know, Blazer talks about. I hear patrons talk about the glory days up here when, you know, Cascade schools were, were, were doing really well. Cascade's, you know, school sports teams were winning state championships. There was a lot of community pride in the school system. What are you going to do as a new superintendent to get that pride back? And, and you know, he's saying, look, we, we have to show some improvement. We have to show patrons that we've got some things turning around, you know, so that we can have buy-in in the community. I mean, they're expecting that. And, you know, Cascade is a, a district facing not just a cultural challenge, but an enrollment challenge. I mean, their enrollment has dropped. It's about half of where it was uh, at its peak some time ago. That affects funding. Yeah, and, and their 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 hope is that they can build a school district that will be a draw that may actually help encourage growth in the Cascade area, so that employers can say, "Hey, look, the schools are you know doing well." And even if that doesn't happen, they want to have you know improved schools anyway. So I was really struck by the culture, and again, talking about it here is good because I don't know how that all works into a a series about literacy, but definitely, I, I was struck by. You know, Cantrell and his commitment to changing the culture there. And, you know, like I said, you can't talk to him very long without uh, without him referring to the management books that he looks at and, and the management guides that, that he uses to, to inform his process as an administrator. It was a fascinating project for me for a lot of reasons. I mean, that guy's work ethic, Ryan Cantrell's, blows me away. I think I work hard during the legislative session. It's nothing compared... To what he does day in and day out, but and and, and, he's, and he's a young administrator, yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> with you, a family. You, you do you do enough profiles, you do enough stories that it becomes kind of a rote question in an interview. At some point, you got to ask somebody how old they are. But as I was driving around with him that day, it was like, no, wait, how old are you? <laughs> he's thirty nine. He's one of the youngest superintendents in the state, and you know, he is very driven. He's very focused. I mean, you get that you know right away that you know this is something that he is. He's all in on. And I love coming out and visiting schools and spending time with schools. And that's just the thing that I want to stress. This wasn't just me picking up the phone and having a 10-minute conversation and someone paying lip service. Oh, yeah, we're doing the right things. We're buying in. No, this is a commitment that was evidence. I'm, I'm not in a position to say exactly what the future is going to hold for this district or how everything is going to play out. But it, it's evident that this is a commitment. And to me... The experience of going to a remote district. I've been to Chalice before. I've been mm -hmm. to Basin a couple of times. But going to Bruno Grandview really illustrated what it means to not just be a rural district, but to be a remote district. And it was eye-opening. But these school visits are really important. I really enjoy it. But above all else, I think it keeps me honest. By going mm -hmm. out and seeing, you know, it's one thing to 
sit in the state house and, and, and watch bills being passed and understand policy from that sort of level. But it keeps us honest to go out and be in the schools for an extended period of time, meet the people who have to implement these programs, and just see how it plays out in the real world. That keeps right. me honest, and it's fun, and it's fascinating. Um, and, and, and I love the experience, and I love going out. I was out in the Middleton schools a couple of weeks ago. I love going out and visiting schools and meeting with educators and seeing how it all plays out in the real world. And it's powerful. And I get a sense that our colleagues in other states, education reporters in other states, don't always have that same level of access uh, or trust with, with administrators and school personnel. Uh, school visits, on-campus visits, might be kind of rare in some other mm-hmm. states. And so I feel fortunate to be in Idaho and, and to work with these administrators um, and to be able to, to see for myself an experience, I thought it was powerful, and I hope that my story, which you can catch at IdahoEdNews.org, I hope it reveals a little bit about what's going on out there. No, and it's a really good look at, at a, a snapshot of a district that is really, really trying to embrace change. Uh, it's a really well-done piece, a lot of voices, a lot of perspectives, so, so check that out. It's been a full week. Yeah, but we were just talking. Next week's going to be big as well. A couple of key things before we let you go that we want to talk about. Starting Tuesday night, Kevin, uh, one of us will be out at Boise State University. This is kind of cool. This is where the college Republicans and the young Democrats are getting together and having a forum at Boise State. Uh, Representative Barbara Ehart, Republican from Idaho Falls, is going to be participating, as will uh, Senator Cherie Buckner-Webb, Boise Democrat. A uh, member of the Senate Education Committee uh, is going to be there. But this is fascinating in light of the debate that's played out at Boise State right. since the summer. Right. So you have those two legislators. You have House Minority Leader Matt Orkelding and Representative Brian Zollinger from Idaho Falls, yep. a fellow Republican from Idaho Falls, along with E. Hart. And, and you know, hats off to the four legislators. This is a very sensitive issue. Uh, it could be a pretty heated debate. Um, don't know what kind of questions the uh, four legislators are going to get from, from the audience, which is uh, going to be an audience, I assume, largely of students. Yep. So, you know, kudos to the legislators for getting out into the community most affected by this debate. So we will be there as well, and we'll have full coverage on Tuesday. We talked about the task force. They're back at it on Wednesday. You will be there all day for that. Yep, getting the band back together on Wednesday. I think it's going to be the second to last task force meeting, and I think they're really going to look at this idea for a new accountability system based on, guess what, early literacy, reading skills, reading results from the Idaho Reading Indicator Test that we talked about at the top of the program. I think they're actually going to look at growth, not just proficiency, Uh, but expect that plan to be fleshed out a little bit next week. We'll have full coverage late Wednesday afternoon, early Wednesday evening. So keep an eye out for that and anything else that comes along. We've got a lot of other stuff uh, going and, and who knows what the, the rest of the week uh, could could produce for us because as I said at the beginning you never know what you're going to get or when you're going to get it when it comes to data or really just about anything else education related it's uh, it's a new day every day around here yeah we've been surprised before but uh, thank you so much for joining us we always have a lot of fun on the extra cut of podcast breaking down this ever complicated intersection of education policy and education politics I'm Clark I'm Kevin have a good week